I haven't had fun in months. I give up. It can have the stupid planet. Yeah. Holla. Holla. <laughs> Holla, bread. Love that bread. Actually, I, I want this planet because holla bread is good. Yeah. You know, that, that will call me crazy, but most bread is good. You guys just redoubled my efforts to fight this coronavirus. <laughs> because you remembered that bread exists. That's good. It's a reason to yeah, live for. I, Specifically, holla. Same, same for me, but it's I, I remembered that bread the band exists. Ooh. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and they can't take that away from me. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, soccer card investor. And I'm co-host Peter Cook, 321 contact fanatic. And this episode will air on March 2nd. Oh, dang. I forgot about that. Yeah. You remember that program? Wow. Yeah. It's great. Been a little while. So I learned a lot from that PBS programming. The song is like a blur in my head forming back into a song. <laughs> this is where you will insert it into the podcast. <laughs> Fading in. Um, <laughs> Can you well, just sing it, Peter? And I'll just... Use that. Three, two, one. Contact is the action. That's as much as I remember. Beautiful. Stunning. Inspired. Is that what you remember? That is all I remembered, and then it goes kind of foggy after that. I remember the Bloodhound Gang theme. That was like a sub-show on there. That was like a detective show program as part of that but i don't remember anything about that <laughs> oh you want to talk about a record huh i'll bet you do i do i'm here to talk about a record are you guys ready for it i'd listen to you talk about a record yeah what record all righty well today i have brought a live set from a jazz trio led by pianist errol garner and it is called concert by the sea it was recorded at the Sunset School in Carmel, California on September 19th, 1955 and released October 13th, 1955 on Columbia Records. Although I will say I have my doubts about it being released on that date because a lot of sources cite 1956 as the release date for this album. So, and I'll go into why I find it hard to believe that it would be released less than a month after being recorded later on in the episode. But let's get started with the opening track, I'll Remember April. Thank you. 
Now, Peter, you said this was recorded in Carmel, California, but let me correct you and say that's Carmel by the Sea, California. That is true, Jeremy. It's where the rich people live. There's like a ton of rich people. I I ate some overpriced fish there once on my way to Santa Cruz. And he's still salty about it to this day. And I'm still salty about it. <laughs> Wait, Sean, none of our uh, our $20 Patreon records are going out to Carmel by the Sea, are there? Not so far. Oh, good. We, we can afford to piss off an entire city at this point. We've been ticking off rock stars and producers one by one, although uh, some of them are not alive anymore that are on the list. So I guess that makes it easier for us to take on an entire community. <laughs> I'm 100% positive Nobody in Carmel by the Sea is listening to a bargain bin vinyl podcast. So, all right, well then, fuck them. Wow, da- Whoa. damn! I did not know this was. <laughs> but that was uh, amazing piano playing. Oh yeah, we want to talk about the music. Yeah, I I love it. It's happy without being cheesy, as well as it's discordant without being dissonant. I I just I love Errol Garner's playing. Yeah, it rides this line between, I don't especially like swing, but there's some swinginess to it, but -hmm. then there's like some bop influence, but it's not like super far out bop. It like pulls from a few different jazz traditions and melds a very interesting take on jazz. So because the album is called Concert by the Sea and has this great shot of the ocean on the cover it's always kind of struck me as well that the music on here in errol's playing style does have kind of a watery hypnotic feel to it because like you said it's all these different genres but at the same time not quite and seems to just blend effortlessly between them all at times oh that's a good metaphor too with the there's like a rhythmic pulse that he does that's what probably most blew me away listening to this is there's this like push and pull with the rhythm between his hands and the instruments, but like a really masterful kind of like pushing and pulling the rhythm kind of like waves that as a musician, I know when I do that, it's just because I'm screwing up and not keeping on beat, (laughs) but he's like 
clearly manipulating it intentionally. <laughs> yeah, in full control at all times, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I can't, I don't know how he can keep track of what both his hands are doing when they're just going in such opposite directions, yet somehow coming together to create something so pleasing to the ears. It's masterful. And this was a best-selling jazz album in its day. It was the jazz album that people who weren't necessarily jazz fans had in their collection. It actually kind of reminds me a little bit of the Martin Denny episode in that regard. Quiet Village would have been the exotica record that people who weren't necessarily connoisseurs of the genre or tiki culture would have in their collection. Yeah, we could make a whole list of that specific kind of record, like good records that Squares bought, you know? <laughs> like you got Concert by the Sea, yeah, you got the Martin Denny, even the Ahmed Jamal Live at the Pershing, very similar to this record. Yeah, there, there's certain albums like that that you can't deny how amazing they are, but for some reason just the they got a weird amount of mass appeal and took off with audiences that wouldn't normally be hip to the kind of music that was on it. Yeah, it's... It's a pretty fascinating phenomenon. And it has a converse effect with, like, I consider myself someone who likes good jazz, and I had never heard of this before you brought it to us, Peter. Oh, really? So this was totally new to you? Yeah, I'd never even heard that name before somehow. I don't think that I had heard of Errol Garner until I was in the van with Sean Hartman driving around eight or nine years ago, we were going to buy records and he had a cassette of Errol Garner in his car. It may may have been this album or perhaps a different one. I don't know if you have any recollection of what you owned. It would have been this one. It would have been this one. Yeah. Okay. And I, I might've found this copy that day when we went digging. It's something about it just immediately grabbed me. Yep. And it's great for putting on as background music, and it's even better to pay close attention to. Mm-hmm. That's been my experience. Absolutely. I think I first got into this record from probably like, you know, one of the PBS documentary series about the history of jazz kind of thing. I know I, know I checked out a few of those in like late high school when I was first getting into jazz. And this record was mentioned prominently, and a lot of people just talked about how Errol was such a genius. So was kind of on my radar from an early point which is weird because you know most people just casually get into jazz don't ever get into this guy anymore unfortunately yeah yeah he's just unfortunately not celebrated and we'll we'll talk a little more about that later on on why that is uh but yeah he was born in pittsburgh pennsylvania with his twin brother ernest in 1921 and errol began playing piano at the age of three He was self-taught, never learned to read music. He always played by ear. And he apparently had really good memory. He was one of those people who could see a performance of music he'd never heard, return home, and perform a good amount of it from memory. Just a natural. He moved to New York City in 1944, and his recording career began the following year, 1945. He signed with Columbia, the label that this is on, in 1954. And that same year, he wrote the jazz standard Misty, which was, of course, immortalized in the 1971 classic Play Misty for Me, (laughs) which has come up on the podcast. Mm -hmm. Nothing wrong with that film. (laughs) (laughs) I'm second time that 
movies come up. And the third time Clint Eastwood's come up, right? Yeah, yeah. Will will it be the last? <laughs> Only time will tell. <laughs> I guess Clint Eastwood got the rights to the song after seeing Garner perform at the Concord Music Festival in 1970. He specifically, you know, a lot of people performed that song, but it was seeing Garner perform that got Eastwood to uh, seek that song out. So this, as, as Jeremy mentioned, this album takes its name from the full name of the city where it was recorded, Carmel by the Sea. And it was recorded in the Sunset School, which is a late Gothic revival style building. It's still there. It's now the Sunset Cultural Center. And it contains a 733-seat auditorium that was, at this time in the mid-1950s, used by local promoter Jimmy Lyons for what he called his Sunset Series. This series actually laid the groundwork for the Monterey Jazz Festival founded by Jimmy Lyons in 1958. When I was first reading this, I thought it was the Montreux Jazz Festival (laughs) in Switzerland. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. No, no, Monterey Jazz Festival. But the Sunset Series, these concerts were scheduled on Monday nights. Weirdly enough, when we did the Temptations live album, those were also... (laughs) That was also a series that happened on Monday nights, Motown Mondays. So I must, uh, my new theme with bringing live albums is ones that were recorded on Monday nights. I'm sticking to it. (laughs) All right, go for it. You really want me to get nerdy about dates and time. (laughs) I have nothing but faith in you, Peter. (laughs) The reason for that being in this case was that the musicians were usually on route from San Francisco to Los Angeles or vice versa. And they were usually booked for late summer and early autumn when there wasn't much else going on in the area. Other performers who performed at the sunset series include Ella Fitzgerald, Duke Ellington, Dave Brubeck and Cal Jader, who also released a concert by the sea album, a, with an album with that name. It is pronounced Cal Jader, right? That's the way I've always heard it, but I can't say if it's 100% correct. We'll go with it. Accompanying Garner at this performance are drummer Denzel DaCosta Best, a bebop percussionist renowned for his brushwork, as well as bassist Eddie Calhoun, who had previously worked with the aforementioned Ahmad Jamal, and he had just started playing with Garner before this. And on this recording, the bass and drums are hard to hear, But you can hear Errol's piano and his trademark vocalizations while he's playing, which is similar to Thelonious Monk notoriously hums when he's performing. Garner was short in stature, and he actually played sitting on stacked telephone directories on the piano bench. He was only five foot two. He's a very distinctive player. And as Jeremy mentioned, he has a swing style. And this was when Bebop was in. And of course, you know, the, his drummer, Denzel Best, is, was more of a, uh, a Bebop player. So there's a hybrid happening here that's unique. In the next piece that I want to feature, which is Red Top, listen, there's some real playfulness in here. Garner was also very playful in his innovations as he performed. He starts to a ways into the composition, quote, Charlie Parker's Now's the Time, which he then transitions into what sounds like Pop Goes the Weasel. And you can hear him kind of grunting at his joke that he's making, and the audience starts laughing and reacting. So listen for that. About a minute and a half 
into this next piece. Red Top, Side B, Track 1. The vocalizing with the piano is something that actually drew me into this record early on. I believe I've stated on the show before that I just, I've always loved when jazz musicians, especially, you can hear them kind of almost absentmindedly vocalizing along with it. You hear that a lot with like uh, Young Holtz Unlimited tracks and some other players in particular. But in, in researching for this episode, I watched this really great hour long interview from, I believe, the late 70s with. Errol's bass player, Ernest McCarty, who's not on this record. He joined later in his career, but he had a lot of interesting insight on like what it was like to play with Errol Garner and the vocalizing he said was something you had to pay attention to a lot on stage because some of it was just him excited about an idea he had, or sometimes critiquing or complimenting an idea that another member of the band had, or sometimes it would be a subtle hint at, the root note of the next coming song. He said, particularly a lot of times he would do a trill on a bass note and then make eye contact with the bass player and give him like a quick vocal signal, like, like a, see what I mean kind of thing. Like this is going to be the root note. Whenever I decide that this improvised intro is done and the song starts kind of thing. <laughs> wow. The amount of attention that the performers have to be giving to one another to you know, they're obviously, there's like a loose melody and structure, but there's a lot of freedom. But they're just such excellent pro players that uh, you'd never really know it. Oh, absolutely. And the crazy thing is this group 
Well, it, like I said, the interview was from a later group, but I imagine the same rules probably applied earlier on. But Errol apparently never rehearsed his groups. They just played shows every night. So when you joined the group, you had to be ready to go into whatever song he might pull out of his head at any point. And uh, the interviewer had asked him, well, how many songs did you have to know? And the, the bass player was like, well, Errol could just like go to a concert and then play the whole concert after that, like just by hearing a song once. Yeah, that's... He, he had famously done that before. Where he just attended concerts of new music and then sat down and played almost the entire thing perfectly. Like that that's the level of genius that we're working with here. Yeah. And just natural, unbelievable. There were no plans to record this concert. Errol Garner at the time was newly signed to Columbia, and if they had if they were looking for a live recording, these were not the circumstances. This was an off night from a nightclub engagement in San Francisco. And I believe at this point, the trio, the Errol Garner trio, were based in New York City. So they were, I guess, kind of like having a, a residency in San Francisco. And this is, they drove an hour and a half away to Carmel by the Sea to perform at the Sunset Series. Bassist Eddie Calhoun opted to borrow an instrument from a local military post rather than hauling his own upright bass to the gig. So he's not even playing on his own axe for this performance. And wild. Yeah. Now, Errol Garner always said that his music reflects everything around him. He really takes in the atmosphere in which he's performing. And the conditions preceding this performance were ideal. They had driven down the Pacific Coast Highway, which I've never done, but I'm, I've heard is awe-inspiring. I don't know if Jeremy can attest to that. I've done it. It is, it is definitely awe-inspiring. There's a reason all the rich people moved there. Like, <laughs> the Central California coast is one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. Uh-huh. One day. One day I will see it. They arrived in Carmel at sundown. Joining the trio on this trip was Errol Garner's manager, Martha Glazer, and Errol and Martha Glazer had a very close working relationship starting in 1950 and going through up to his death in 1977. She was essentially his business partner. And so Martha Glazer's at the gig and she spots a young radio DJ from the Armed Forces Radio Network named Will Thornberry, and he's tinkering around backstage with a tape recorder. So she asks him what he's doing, and he tells her that he plans to record the concert and broadcast it on the nearby Fort Ord's radio station. I guess a, a number of the people in attendance were from Fort Ord that evening. And she says that's okay, as long as after the broadcast, the tapes were turned over to her. However, I think that Martha Glazer recognized that there was something special in the air that night for the performance. And afterwards, she told Will Thornberry, I'll give you copies of every record Errol Garner ever made, but I can't let you keep that tape. <laughs> and when she flew, yeah, she knew she was just like this. There's something magical here and I need it, it right now. I might never get it back if I don't take it right now. So, and I guess when she flew back to New York, she held the tape on her lap the entire flight. She was that determined to get it back to the head of Columbia, who heard it and recognized the inspired playing. However, 
there was concern about the quality of the recording. They got to work. The engineers at Columbia created new filters and boosters to enhance the quality to an acceptable level for commercial release. And they edited down the performance to a single album length. There are several more songs performed that night, not featured on here. There is a, in 2015, they put out the complete concert, which includes an interview with all three members of the trio conducted by Will Thornberry at the end, which was, is really interesting. I definitely advise checking that out because Errol Garner did not do a lot of interviews. Uh, as I understand it, he speaks very briefly at the end of this performance. He's encouraged by the host, Jimmy Lyons to say a, a quick word to the audience. And, and that's all you hear from him on the, uh, the normal version of the album. The one that we're actually playing tonight is a 1970 re-release with new album artwork at the time, new album artwork, and it had been electronically re-recorded to simulate stereo. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I think that for the 2015 release, they also redid the artwork for that one. Every time they re-release this new cover, but all of them work. And I, I think it definitely, you know, it could be cheesy, New cover, but it's the picture. All of them, I believe, have the ocean with the rocky central California coast and then a girl kind of like outstretched by the sea. Yeah, I think they updated the 1971 to have for her to have a little bit more of a hippie look. Because <laughs> you said you thought this was going to be. Yeah, it's a little groovier. <laughs> Yeah, you can tell there's like a flower in her hair and wearing a sash and got like the uh, kind of bell-bottom jeans. Yeah, they're marketing to a whole new generation with that reissue. <laughs> so the reason that I theorize that I find it hard to believe that this could have been recorded on September 19th, 1955 and released October 13th, 1955, less than a month later, is that it was not a planned release. <laughs> like, I don't, I, maybe Columbia had the ability to do, to do everything that I just described, invent filters and boosters and get album artwork and get the pressing out in three weeks. But I find that hard to believe. I'm thinking that something's amiss here. And I think that it was released in 1956, but maybe that seems trivial. But if you're listening to this podcast, these are the things that are important. <laughs> Minutia. <laughs> what if... What if they had initial copies available in that short amount of time for DJs to use, but the mass release was maybe a little bit later? That seems possible to me. It's possible. All right. It's possible. I mean, that's quick, but also like Columbia had the means to do whatever they wanted, probably as, as quickly as they wanted for the most part, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> well, anyway, back to Errol's playing. I would next like to feature Autumn Leaves. Usually the intros on this are brief and dissonant before kicking into the recognizable tune, but this one is drawn out and majestic. And we'll, I'd like to hear that extended intro, and then we'll, we'll hear a little bit of the, uh, the groove. So Autumn Leaves, side A, track four. Thank you. 
just admit this i'm actually not normally crazy about autumn leaves i know that it's a classic for whatever reason it's never moved me that much however that version does yeah how could you not be moved by that version elements of that song reminded me of another thing that ernest mccarty said in the interview where you know, he would have all these sections that we talked about the watery sound to it, the hypnotic element. He said there was a lot of sections playing live with him where even though he played with this guy every single night, he was just he would be so enraptured with the beauty of Errol's playing that he would often just like miss the start of songs completely because he was just transported by this guy. <laughs> you know, I, I just love that thought that he could inspire the people he worked with on a, you know, a nightly basis for years <laughs> at that level still. Oh, yeah, I'm performing. I'm not watching him play. I'm performing with him. <laughs> yeah. Oh, shit. What key is this in? <laughs> <laughs> Wild. Well, yeah, this album did register. Martha Glazer, her instinct was right. People wanted to hear this, despite the not great recording quality. The reissue, the more recent reissue, the, uh, Eddie Calhoun's bass is brought out a little bit more, which is nice to hear. But it did, despite its... Fidelity issues. This album had a tendency to cheat. <laughs> no, uh, despite its uh, fidelity issues, it sold over a million copies by 1958. And despite the album's ubiquity, and it earned Garner a fan in Johnny Carson, who frequently had Errol Garner on as a guest. But despite that, Errol's trajectory was hampered just a few years after this when he and Martha Glazer sued Columbia for releasing Garner's sessions without his approval, which went against his contract. And it ended up going to the New York Supreme Court and lasted nearly three years. You know, and this is at the height of his career. It put his career on hold at the height. And there's a lot of speculation amongst jazz heads that this is why he isn't as lionized as other contemporaries, like, say, Dave Brubeck. He did end up winning a cash settlement, which funded the creation of Errol Garner's own independent label, Octave Records, co-founded with Martha Glazer. And it's kind of considered a landmark case for musical artists. It set a precedent for artists having rights to their own material. And I believe that Garner himself 
felt that as an artist of color, the company was taking advantage of him. So it was seen as a victory for black artists getting a little more agency over their material. Unfortunately, yeah, at the height of his career, this kind of put things on hold and he's just never really recovered. He, you know, he died in 1977, didn't have an incredibly long life, but damn, I mean, there's so much of his material out there. This is the one that you'll see the most easily by far. Uh, how many uh, copies do you think you've priced up and sold of this in your time selling records, Sean? Oh, I've, I've priced up dozens of this record at the very least. Uh, yeah. You do find it all over the place, and it's so good. It's a it's a quintessential thrift store bargain bin record. Once you know to look for this, you'll be able to find it pretty easily. It's worth it. Buy two copies. Give one to a friend. Let people know about this legendary musician. And I didn't know that whole thing about him suing Columbia. It's such a ballsy move. Just like semi-destroyed his career to help out all of his fellow musicians. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bittersweet ending to to win that victory, and then by the time you win the victory, like you, nobody cares about you anymore. Yeah, yeah, bittersweet for sure. He's described as a very in the interview that I listened to, and the way that he's described by other artists, he was a very happy, lively individual. Errol Garner, you know, that's I think that exudes in his music. Yeah, and especially. If you look online at some of the little bit of live footage there is of him, he seems just so purely joyous when he's playing. You know, he's got that deep gravelly voice. So I think with some of the music, you could be tricked into thinking that he's, I don't know, groaning or something like that. But no, those are like sounds of pure joy from this guy. The look is on his face the whole time too. Like he is so lost in the music and just in such a good place with it. It's it's a joy to listen to and to watch for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you have any success finding similar artists to put on our Spotify playlist related to this episode, Sean? Oh, I sure did. I put, I tried to go with as many kind of lesser known or very common jazz artists. I wanted to talk a little bit about how I feel like jazz for people who aren't fully into it yet can feel like this very daunting genre there's so much material and also jazz has this reputation of being one of the most overpriced genres to collect on vinyl, especially, you know, looking at those original blue note pressings going for four figures all the time and things like that. It seems like, Oh, well the good records are expensive and everything else is crap. Not true. <laughs> there is just, there's still a mountain of really incredible jazz music out there. You just gotta get a whole new roster of artists that you're looking for and, drop the needle on some very, very cheesy looking record covers sometimes, and you'll be surprised at how good the material is. Just a few of these potentially cheap artists you might be able to find out there. Jonah Jones is a really good one from the album Jumpin' with Jonah Jones. You can find that everywhere. Count Basie, Clifford Brown, Red Garland, Stan Kenton is another guy that has some good material, and you can find all of his records for cheap or free. Sidney Bechet, another classic artist that too many people have forgotten about. Ben Webster, Billy Eckstein, Lester Young, Shelley Mann, Coleman Hawkins, Earl Hines. Mm. And then uh, one of our fans on the I'd Buy That For A Dollar Facebook group suggested a 
track from the Ahmad Jamal album Portfolio, which you can find on this playlist on Spotify. Just search I'd Buy That Podcast, all one word. You can dig into the the new world of cheap classic jazz sounds to be discovered. Yeah, I only recognize like 20% of those names myself. It's uh, some good info there, Sean Dad. There you go. Valuable information. Yes, thank you, Sean. And thank you, listeners. If you would like to help support our efforts in bringing artists like this back into the conversation, you can go over to patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. There are different levels which you can pledge at and you will get bonus content in return. So check that out. Patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast. Any other closing thoughts, fellas? Yeah, talking about how some of those jazz artists that are much harder to find, like, you know, Thelonious Monk, Miles Davis, artists like that where the records are expensive and everyone knows to look for those. There's a lot of similarities between some of those bigger 60s jazz guys and some of the stuff that Errol Garner was pioneering just a short decade before that. Especially Thelonious Monk, we mentioned him before they have a very very similar approach that kind of early stride piano style has this foundation to a lot of the music that they do however neither one of them ever limited that to just picking one genre they could combine it with more avant-garde stuff and make a whole new sound out of it so yeah there's a lot of really cool stuff like that that you can find for cheap like errol garner concert by the sea excellent well I would like to go out on the track Mambo Carmel, which is one of the few originals of Errol Garner's found on Concert by the Sea. This was, at the time of this concert, it was untitled. Obviously, it's named after the location of the concert. And it was a Latin rhythm that the trio had been developing in performances leading up to this. And because... It was captured on Will Thornberry's tape recorder. It was immortalized. So uh, we're going to go out on that. Thank you so much for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. And I know you California listeners are out there. If you're in California and you haven't driven down the 101, just go do it. Yes. I've said my piece. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye.